do you want to quickly just introduce your name, who you are? My name is Gloria Mark. I'm a professor at University of California, Irvine, in the Department of Informatics. And my role at the CHI conference is general chair. Last week, I had the opportunity to attend the CHI conference in Denver. I first heard about the conference when talking to Anna Turner for the episode Grad School, Part 1. In her graduate program, they had given students the option to go to one of three conferences. Email me if I'm wrong, Anna, but they were South by Southwest, UXPA, and CHI. In so many ways, these conferences create and shape the social networks, best practices, and future of UX. CHI is by far the most academic of the three, and over the next few weeks, I'll be bringing you some of the parts I thought would be most applicable to this group. Look out for articles on Medium as well. I hope these episodes and articles provide some insight into the value of this particular conference for those interested in attending or unable to do so. So back to Gloria with a quick introduction of the CHI conference before we move on to the meat of today's episode a conversation with a pioneer in the field of human-computer interaction, Ben Schneiderman. For people who have never heard of it, what is the CHI conference? So CHI stands for Computer-Human Interaction. So what does that mean? So, you know, we're, we're so used to using computers in our everyday lives. And CHI uh, is about trying to make that experience better for people. And it's a very, very interdisciplinary field. And it touches on everything from uh, virtual reality to sensors, to social media, to understanding people in the workplace and studying how children use digital tools. It's a very, very interdisciplinary and very vast uh, air field that, that deals specifically with this area of people using computer technology. It, it deals with designing technology to improve the experience and understanding what that experience is itself by, by doing empirical studies, observing people mm -hmm. using these kinds of tools. Yeah, and Kai has such a rich history you know, for 35 years, I mean, basically people have been coming here and presenting research that ultimately has changed the world in, in hugely significant ways. I would love to hear kind of from your perspective, what's the unique value of this conference as opposed to, you know, because there are so many conferences out there today, but how would you kind of describe Kai's unique place? So Kai to me is a cutting edge technology conference. And so if you want to hear about the latest in terms of technology or the latest in terms of social media uh, or the latest in terms of uh, even political issues that relate to technology, this is the place to be. So it's also a very interesting place for people of all disciplines to come together. So um, if you are a person in a computer science department, you would have an opportunity to meet somebody in a psychology department or someone in a, an arts, arts and media department. 
uh, or anthropology or sociology or electrical engineering. So it's people from all these different uh, departments. And what is really unique is that it's a place where everyone comes together and there are very few venues where people can come and meet people from outside of their siloed fields and be able to discuss um, common uh, themes which have to do with computer-human interaction. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I went to a session this morning that was around politics, the 2016 election and technology and, you know, really kind of our role and responsibility in that space. And then I just had a conversation with a psych PhD student when I also attended a VR session. You know, I don't I don't think there are many places where you can kind of get all of that. That's that's where new ideas uh, generate when when you bring people from different disciplines together and it causes people to really think of completely new ideas, things that they may not be exposed to in their in their own fields. And, and this is where you get um, new ideas and innovations by bringing you know, people of different disciplines together. So who do you recommend comes to CHI? Anyone, everyone? It's for someone that wants to um, really explore things in a completely new way, exploring about technology wants to think out of the box, wants to meet people from not only different disciplines, but people from around the world. Um, it's, it's pretty cool to come here and meet people from Namibia and South Africa that are working on human-computer interaction um, and people from you know South America, Europe, North America, Asia, it, it is just really, really cool. It's a, it's a tremendous experience. Gloria is right. Kai brings together a diverse group of people. It was fascinating to watch the social dynamics unfold. I discovered tribes, so to speak. People who had the same academic lineage, referring to each other as brother or sister. And when you consider the effort required to earn certain degrees, or how long some people have been attending Kai, it makes sense. I met one researcher who had been attending for the last 31 years. One of the people at the social and intellectual heart of the conference is Ben Schneiderman. Ben will talk about some of his contributions to the field of human-computer interaction, or HCI as it's known, but let's just say he is one of the founding fathers. His publications, such as Designing the User Interface, are canonical at this point. And he actually founded one of the first HCI labs at the University of Maryland. It was pretty neat to get to sit down with him. Sorry if we're rushing at any points, but he is a pretty busy guy after all. This is Ariel Sionflom, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, The Future of HCI. Yesterday, you gave this amazing keynote on all of the contributions that the Kai community has made and really the way, you know, Kai has changed and shaped the world. And I would love to kind of hear your take on, you know, all of these contributions have been made over the past 35 years. What do you see in the next five to 10 years? Like, yeah, how do you see that? <laughs> Thanks for this invitation and opportunity to tell the story to yet another audience. Yeah. I've long been a member of this community. I started this conference way back when, 
and uh, my books, the Designing the User Interface series from first to sixth edition, uh, have been taking snapshots of what this world is like. They're 600-page books, so they're yeah. meant for researchers and students and professionals as well, and they've had a very satisfying impact. I'm pleased to see that yeah. it has helped. It's contributed to building this community strongly. Um, so uh, what I see is that this community, both the research community and the professional user interface design engineers, builders, and so on, have made a huge difference in my life and everyone's life on this planet. The fact that 8 billion people have something in their pocket that they use to get what they need to do business, to get medical care, to, to educate themselves, to connect with family. This is pretty amazing, and they can use it. And they can use it because of the work that was done in this community. We came to understand the visual design principles. We had the evidence. We worked in the field to validate that it worked. And we codified the guidelines that became the human interface guidelines for Apple, for Microsoft, that traveled on the web, that the web content accessibility guidelines traveled around the world, the international standards. There's very few fields that can claim such clear and broad impact in changing the world yeah. in this dramatic way. I mean, it's a pretty remarkable story. I've had the satisfaction of being part of it, and my own, you know, three particular contributions just it, it just thrills me to see what happened in the early 80s we were working on electronic encyclopedias on a on a standalone personal computer and developed the idea of the link that certain words in a paragraph would be highlighted and you click on them to go somewhere <laughs> it sort of seems obvious by now but that happened and we ran about 12 studies of different ways of doing that what colors should we be using if you had them bright red people could spot them easier but they did not remember the text they were reading and the light blue was just enough of a distinction that they could read the text see the links and get their work done and that's what Tim Berners-Lee put to work on the web so we developed various hypertext documents the world's first electronic book in 1988 uh, and Tim Berners-Lee's manifesto for the web in spring 89 cited our work so <laughs> I can see the the lineage of these ideas and many others contributed similar ideas but it's that was a pretty clear one also we began work on touch screens in the in the late 80s and we came to see that touch screens could be a big thing at the time the resolution of touch screens was poor so buttons had to be kind of an inch square was the recommendation mm -hmm. for people to be able to hit them and we began to work to make high precision touch screens by putting a cursor on the screen so you could see exactly where you were pointing to. And we made then a touchscreen keyboard. Pretty wild idea. Yeah. And the first, the big one was nine inches wide and then seven and five and three inches wide, uh, just under three inches wide. And we ran studies with touchscreens and you could type faster on a big keyboard, about 30 words per minute, but you could still type 10 or 15 words a minute on a tiny three-inch keyboard even <laughs> then. And wow, that went out there, and it's on Changed everybody's smartphone. Right. So, you know, <laughs> it's <laughs> very gratifying to see that kind of thing. And the third one that I could see is photo tagging. I'm a photographer, for, and I always photograph family and travel things, but at professional conferences. And I had, by, by the year 2000, about 
30,000 professional photos and 30,000 um, personal photos on my laptop. And I got very interested in how do I find a photo if I need it. And we developed a tool called Photo Finder. <laughs> and within it was the idea of photo tagging, that you have three or four people in a picture. You have a list of the family members or your colleagues, and you drag from the list and drop it on their face and click you get a tag. Yeah, and it, it's amazing <laughs> to hear stories like this because I think, you know, all of us obviously use this stuff basically That's every right. day, but you, you don't That's hear right. the stories. Well, of. you know, for a while I sort of did this, and I did get a patent for that. So, you know, that, and, and the University of Maryland did sell that patent. Uh, and I, you know, couldn't tell how far it traveled or what happened because once it's sold, it's sort of out of eye. My hand, but re <laughs> I uh, I recently was looking around for the, the paper we wrote about it, which was in the SIGCHI uh, ACM Interactions magazine, and that paper has fifty-seven patents that cite that that uh, paper, which shows the first occurrence of that kind of tagging, and we had developed and tested that in lots of different ways with lots of people, so we had pretty strong confidence that it worked and. To my amazement, that's you know spread far and wide and is widely used. And so sometimes you can see the trace of your work from one place to another to a widespread commercial application. And I've lately come to see how powerful are these small innovations. Each of those three seems small at the time. And yet, I think those three were transformative. Now, in, in my professional career, I spent a lot of time about um, um, visual interfaces and information visualization. And I'm proud of the work we did in developing the sliders and the scattergrams uh, that led tree to the map. tree maps. Well, first, this was Spotfire, which, mm -hmm. you know, I was part of the board of directors, watched it grow to 200 people, and it got acquired, and it continues to be a success story. And colleagues also like, you know, the, the Tableau is another grand success story, and I'm cheering for them. Uh, as well, and then the tree maps, you're right. That was another aha moment experience as a researcher, as a professor, where I was trying to find a way to show all the content of the hard drive on one screen with no scrolling. And it took me months and scratching my head until one day I had this aha moment in the faculty coffee lounge. And, and it took me three days to figure out if that was really right and write the, the six lines of recursive code that did this this pretty nifty two-way, bottom-up, top-down traversal to produce the tree map. Yeah, that we all see now in news publications, yeah. data visualizations. Yeah. And, and for professionals, mostly professionals do know about that, but it's not the widespread popular things that those first three were. It's astonishing to me to see those things have, you know, are, are universal, whereas tree maps are still a specialized thing. And we continue to work on Node Excel for network visualization, and the last six years on event flow for electronic patient histories and other kind of event uh, sequences. So I think event analytics is the next big thing mm -hmm. in data science. But all those things, you know, are really for t the technical professionals. The, the, the growing sense of satisfaction I have is those three things, the, the highlighted embedded link, the uh, small touch screen, uh, and uh, the, uh, photo <laughs> the photo tagging, thank you, right. So those are all pretty interesting stories that I feel more and more have risen in my consciousness of, wow, I do that. And when I travel in non-professional circles and people ask me what do I do, and I mention those things, 
you know, that produces this sort of astonishing response, which makes me sort of makes me aware. I'm surprised, but it makes me aware of how much people appreciate how these things have changed their world. And the touchscreen, we had done a lot of touchscreen work, and I have to give credit to my dear collaborator, Catherine Plaisant, who I've worked with for many years, and she particularly developed the idea of slide to open. And uh, we were, you know, developing touchscreen things, and we were in connection with Apple. I was a consultant for them. Steve Jobs came to visit our lab <laughs> in 1988 and saw a lot of things. And in his classic way, he would go from demo to demo and say, that's great, that's great, that sucks, that's great, <laughs> that sucks. There was no in-between. He had strong opinions, even though sometimes he was wrong, but he knew exactly what he wanted. So that was a memorable occasion, and, and Apple did sort of try to take some of our things, and they, uh, uh, but the Apple-Samsung patent battle of last year, which Catherine was heavily featured in, uh, demonstrated that her work of slide to open was the prior art, yeah. and that's, what, that's where it came from. So, you know, it, sometimes it takes 20 years to get the validation that your work was the first one and that it did travel and have impact. Yeah, well, and I mean, it's incredible because how many people think, you know, I want to change the world, <laughs> you know, and to be able to actually like look back and see that you yeah. in some way you're affecting almost, I mean, I don't want to say everyone, but yeah. so many people, yeah. especially, you know, in more developed countries, like they're in some way interacting with your work every day. I put hyperlinks in my emails and things every day. That's right. It, it's very gratifying. At the same time, to remember, there are real challenges, dangers, and bad stories coming out of this grand success, too. Anything that big and transformative will also have some downsides. And, you know, it very much concerns me. And you ask about what's the next five or ten years. But we've got to deal with the question of online bullying, of fake news. And of, of we've got to get better control over social media uh, so that we can trust it, that it can be credible, reliable, useful. It's become quite pernicious and problematic, and uh, I, I'm very concerned about that. I do think social media is, and, and the whole HCI field, is going to grow and be, for the next hundred years, the biggest discipline. We will be bigger than physics. We will be bigger than all the than chemistry. And when in my, my keynote talk I suggested that you know, we have to think at the level there should be United Nations age, international agency of or international user experience agency. I was pretty serious because we are the developers of this powerful technology that can bring good things, but also bring some real challenges and dangers. And we need to address those. We can't hide. We should not hide. Uh, we should make sure that these things get done better. That social media is something that people feel useful and that, it, that, that there are ways in which the user community can suppress the spread of pernicious, hateful, untrue information. Um, it's not easy, but uh, there are ways to do it. Yeah, and I wonder from your perspective, what is kind of the role or the responsibility of the researcher in not only you know experiencing the future but also crafting the future because I I think you're so right and we spend more and more time in these digital spaces and so they're having you know a greater effect on on us absolutely um, we are responsible that's a big word for me we personally as researchers and as professionals need to be aware of the powerful impacts of what we are doing we need to talk about it we need to develop our 
own codes of ethics. We need to take responsibility. We need to see how what we do produces good and what the dangers are. We have to stay involved. So Sig Chi is, as a professional society is looking to these things. Researchers in this community are aware of these problems. Tomorrow I'm speaking on a panel about responses for the Chi community to the U.S. 2016 election, which many troubling aspects of hacking and fake news and the way fear and lies are spread. And we need to address that. That's the current challenge of our time and the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So I'm a great believer in the going social. And the going social uh, has taught me a lot of things that I just was totally surprised that how powerful is the crowd uh, and how effective, if we make the right designs, we can do better. So, you know, Facebook and a lot of other social media, almost every feature there is designed to push things out, to build a network, to spread the news. Mm -hmm. It's all gas pedal. There is no brake pedal, okay? And what we need are brake pedals in the design, ways that people could say, wait a minute, this thing is not okay. This thing is hateful. This thing is bullying. This, this piece is not, full, not true. And that will slow down certain things. We'll never get rid of it all, but we can do a lot in, through the design process to, to improve the quality of what's there and make the experience better. Another, another key issue for me about the future is making sure the technology helps individuals and experts do their job better. I worry that some of these tools de-skill people, undermine their control, make it harder for them to know what's going to happen next. Okay? So I'm a great believer in key principles, comprehensible, predictable, and controllable. If it's not comprehensible, predictable, uncontrollable, get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Okay? Or Let's be more positive. Let's make it better. Yeah. Okay. I was surprised yesterday in hearing the panel that you were on. You actually, you know, you referred to an algorithm that someone said, oh, it's so incredibly complicated. I can't even explain it. And you were like, throw it out. Exactly. And I, I, I've never heard, I think, the perspective <laughs> of someone let, saying, you know, like, let's put the brake on it. Like what you're saying, if it's, if it's so incomprehensible that we as human beings can't even understand or, you know, obviously comprehend what's going on, maybe we need to actually, you know, put the brake on and reconsider that, which I think is, is really kind of a novel idea a little bit. Absolutely. That's where we have to grow. We have to go. That because these things have such widespread effects, we better make sure they work well. Yeah. And last year, you, you know, you released a new book, The New ABCs of Research. <laughs> and I would love to ask you, you know, because obviously ABC, uh, you know, you can explain what it stands for and what each part means. ABCs of Research was meant as a playful title. Yeah. It had stands for several things. The main one is applied and basic combined, mm -hmm. ABC. That is, you work on real problems with real users and real data, but you also take a theoretical approach. And when you're done, your goal is to get the twin wins, not one or the other, but get both published papers and peer-reviewed journals with basic research results and a validated solution that's disseminable. Okay, that's where you want to go. You can't always achieve that, but that ought to be your goal. So that means researchers and universities should be working with people in industry, people in government, people in NGOs, to work on real problems. And 
if they have a real theory, they ought to test it in the real world. Um, you know, it's, it makes your theory stronger if you get out there and give it a try. The new ABCs talks about that. Another one of the ABCs is achieving breakthrough collaborations. Teamwork has become, I wouldn't say essential, but um, pretty valuable. And I'm amazed in my career, the quality and the richness of the research papers I see published is much, much greater. They do so much, and it therefore often requires teams of people, maybe a practitioner and a theoretician. And I'm pleased that the National Science Foundation is actually beginning to move that way, that recent funding programs required or encouraged submissions from theoretical and practical people together to solve both those problems at once. So I'm encouraged to see that people are picking up on these ideas, and, and I'm working hard still to see that go. It's hard to change people's conceptions and university cultures, but that's where I'm going. Yeah, I mean, and you know, obviously it's applied and basic, and you are speaking so much about collaboration. What would you recommend for, you know, people who work as professionals if they want to get involved? You know, I think we've seen amazing things happen with citizen scientists, um, you know, in the last couple right. of decades. Like, how... How would you recommend like encouraging that collaboration or getting involved in that um, collaboration? We're just at the early days of social media and all these things of citizen science, you said very well, citizen journalism, citizen activism. It's a changing world and the great power is out there in the crowd and we have to use it responsibly, but I think we're going to see more and more of the way these powerful forces that getting something done will require lots of partnerships and lots of connections online. So, you know, uh, and we have to study how that works. One of our theories of that, uh, written with my wife Jenny Priest, is called Reader to Leader. Reader to Leader. Take a look at the paper, free to download. Uh, and the Reader to Leader theory tells us that there's a progression of the way people get involved in social media. Think Wikipedia, right? There's more than a billion readers of Wikipedia, but only one-tenth of one percent ever make an edit. Tiny, tiny fraction. How might we up that to two-tenths of one percent, okay? And then of those who make an edit, they usually just do a few and then never come back. Some people get really into it, and they become active contributors, and they spend a lot of time contributing. And some people really get into that, and they become leaders. There are about 1,400 admins in Wikipedia who really keep that thing going. They work really hard, and they do it for free. And it's just, I've been twice to the Wikimania conference. It's very inspiring. It makes you feel the world's going to be okay when you see all the people devoted to getting validated knowledge out in the hands of everybody in their own languages. I, I just am charmed by that vision. And the question for us is, what's the next 100 Wikipedias? How will we use Wikipedia for citizen science? Maybe the, maybe the uh, EOL, Encyclopedia of Life, is such a Wikipedia for every species on the planet. Mm -hmm. And how will we have 100 other Wikipedias of crowdsourced knowledge or action to get things done. I think that's where the big action is. Sure, we'll have other things like 3D printing and Internet of Things will happen, um, but all those need to be shaped by the human needs. That's the critical thing. We have to get, you know, technology is important. We got to get better technology, but always the, the kind of better technology we want 
is that one, those that serve human needs. So that's a big push for me. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, join us for more UX research conversation in the Slack group. You can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Thanks to Laura Levitt, who creates original graphics for each episode. You can see them under the Episodes tab on the website or by following us on Twitter. See you next time.